And due to the nature of this legend, it's not appropriate for those under the age of 18. This episode contains strong descriptions and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. There's nothing like the love between a mother and a child. Their bond, cemented in the womb and carried on when born, a healthy maternal relationship offers great comfort and can be the most rewarding relationship a person has. But sometimes, that relationship can be terrifying and downright evil. It's difficult to imagine how anyone could murder their own children. It would seem to most that nothing could possess them to perform such a heinous act. Yet, many, many women throughout history have killed the very beings they've brought into the world. Though mental illness, abuse, and addiction are usually associated with these unspeakable actions, what if something else were to blame? In 1986, a woman threw six of her children into a bayou, and two drowned. When asked, she claimed she was La Llorona. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. Warmth radiated through her body as the late evening sun settled down into the horizon. Summer had arrived early, it seemed, but she didn't mind. She decided to take advantage of the nice temperature and sit by the lake. It wasn't that long ago that she and her husband had bought the property. Feeling like the deal on it was too good to be true, jumped at the chance to own a house on the channel part of the lake. The pathway from the house to the water was gentle and kind, which she was thankful for since she was carrying much more weight now. She hugged her belly with one hand and her book with the other. They had two chairs sitting at the water's edge for occasions like this. While she walked, movement caught her eyes. Her gaze fell on a snake slithering quickly away. Her breath caught, and she froze. Within seconds, the snake was gone, slithering into the brush along the outer edge of her property. She thought about turning back, but decided against it, because the afternoon was so nice and the snake no longer posed a threat. She slipped off her flip-flops and dug her toes in the sand, allowing the water to cool her. After wading in about knee-high, she settled into the plastic Adirondack chair she'd purchased a few weeks prior. The water softly caressed the shore, a relaxing swishing sound as a backdrop to her library book. She wasn't sure why, but since becoming pregnant, she couldn't read her usual favorite, mysteries and thrillers, but instead chose a light, sweet romance. Birds sang in the distance. Her neighbors had several bird feeders that kept the birds singing all day and all night, something she loved to hear. After a few minutes, she closed her eyes and allowed them to rest. 
It seemed that even the short walk from the house to the water had made her tired, and the relaxing sound of the water hitting the shore had all but rocked her to sleep. A soft cry jilted her eyes open. She looked around to see where the noise was coming from, but there was nothing there. The crying continued, surrounding her. It didn't seem to come from anywhere in particular, but rather it was coming from everywhere, all at once. She stood up, leaving her book opened part way and hanging on the arm of the chair, and began to walk toward the house. She cradled her stomach as she did so, but the wailing became louder. It was a woman's voice, but something about it terrified her. It wasn't uncommon living on the lake to hear people's voices way off in the distance. She could sometimes hear people talking on the other side, which was a good bit away, but she had never heard anything like this before. Something that came from all around. Something that seemed to come from within. She tripped on a root, her flip-flop bending backward and her toe pressing into the rigid, hard root. She let out a small cry and turned around to the water again, realizing that she had left her book. A woman floated above the water, a couple of yards from where she stood, dressed in completely white, a long dress flowing in the wind, a veil over her face, dark hair hanging on her shoulders. Her heart stopped as she watched the woman who didn't move, but seemed to be staring in her direction. Feeling so afraid, she turned around and started to run, but again she tripped, her flip-flop pulling from the middle, broken. When she turned around again to see if the woman was still there, she was closer, so close that she could touch her. She let out a scream in which the woman let out an even deeper one, a blood-curdling one that vibrated deep in her soul. She wrapped her arms around her stomach as tears dripped down her face. Whatever this woman was, there was something wrong, something evil about her. That was unmistakable. The woman wearing white reached for her, but not really her, but her child. The woman in white placed her hand on her belly, and her touch burned the skin beneath, and she cried out again. But this time, her cries were alone. The woman in white lifted her veil, but she didn't have a face, only a mouth, grotesquely wide, that screamed. As the most popular Latin American legend, there are several versions of La Llorona, but three of them seem to be the most commonly told. One was recorded in the book, General History of the Things of New Spain. In that version, La Llorona is an Aztec goddess of motherhood and fertility who warned about the looming conquest. Another describes La Llorona as an indigenous woman who fell in love with a Spaniard and bore him three children in secret. But when the man marries a different woman, La Llorona kills their children, enraged by his actions. She immediately regrets what she's done and kills herself in the river as well. 
Her spirit has since wandered the riverbanks, crying out for her beloved children. The third version insists that La Llorona is actually Dona Marina, or La Malinche, Cortez's lover and interpreter. Many argue, however, that the legend of La Llorona goes back much further than that of La Malinche. In fact, it may go all the way back to creation, but we'll get into that a little bit later. The movie, The Curse of La Llorona, that was recently released is part of the Conjuring franchise. Many of the movies document the experiences of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Though there are some artistic changes to the movie, The Conjuring, the basis of the story is true. The history of the home revealed that many of the people who lived there prior had died under mysterious circumstances. Many children through the generations had been drowned in a nearby creek. A woman by the name of Bathsheba Sherman lived on the property in the mid-1800s and was suspected of being involved in the death of a neighbor's child. Any of this sounding familiar? La Llorona is most prevalent in Hispanic culture, but she has definitely spread beyond those bounds. As Dominos Rene Perez writes in her book, There Was a Woman, La Llorona, From Folklore to Popular Culture, quote, La Llorona is no longer strictly confined to oral narratives, songs, and plays. La Llorona permeates almost every genre of popular culture and is even adorned many consumer products. La Llorona's story can be traced back to as early as 1486, where the story of a lady in white has a similar plot to the La Llorona story. As mentioned in Benjamin Radford's Mysterious New Mexico, Miracles, Magic, and Monsters in the Land of Enchantment, quote, almost every community of any size with significant Hispanic presence has at least one story of an encounter with her. Folklorists agree that many of the La Llorona stories are nothing more than urban legend told by people who've heard of other people who've seen her. But if you listen to the La Llorona podcast by Univision, you can hear many actual encounters from first-hand reports of the continuing sightings of La Llorona in modern society. Some people think they have encountered her as a hitchhiker. People have claimed to pick her up, only to have her disappear in the seat of their vehicle. In one version of La Llorona, she is not only weeping for her children, but also searching for them, although it's not clear why, since logic would suggest she'd know where she killed them. A second version is that she is a type of siren who lures men in with her sexuality, a beautiful woman with a lovely voice. The other, of course, is that she is a woman who is out to steal children, either to take them for her own or to use them as a replacement to try to end the curse against her. Some folklorists have even argued that she is a changeling, which is another creature from mythology, an evil fairy that takes a child's body for its own. According to Radford, even jinns in Arabic culture sometimes steal human children. Perhaps La Yerona's most convenient role is that of a boogeyman, where parents use her to scare their children from going around the waterways, or to scare them from being out too late at night, to keep them safe when and where things can be dangerous. 
This makes sense when you consider that most Hispanic cultures originate from desert-type areas where flash flooding around waterways is not uncommon and can be quite dangerous for children. In fact, according to Radford's book, the Albuquerque municipal government even used La Llorona's folklore to spread the message that ditches are deadly, warning children to steer clear the waters because of the, quote, ditch witch. In Darren Aldridge's book, Strange Histories, he discusses how, quote, the wicked life or bad death of an individual is punished by their return as a roaming cadaver. This supports the notion that La Llorona's wanderings of the waterways in search of her children is a curse because of her horrific actions. Before we go any further, the rest of this episode contains strong spiritual, biblical, and demonic references. If any of this makes you feel uncomfortable, please stop here. Do you believe in ghosts? Few of us feel comfortable talking about the supernatural with our friends or co-workers. Many people only speak of their own paranormal experiences when others first share theirs. Like we're only willing to be vulnerable if those around us are too. But this wasn't always the case. In fact, the bridge between life and death, the living and the dead, used to be commonplace discussion. The church even helped with these types of encounters, offering indulgences to help the dead. Even St. Augustine seemed to address the supernatural in City of God, and St. John Bosco had once witnessed a deceased classmate. Even Thomas Equinus says, quote, Since the devil and the demons wander throughout the world, and are everywhere present with wondrous speed, why should the martyrs, after shedding their blood, be imprisoned and unable to go forth? Therefore, it is absurd to say that the souls of the departed do not leave their abode. Other prominent church figures, such as John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, also had supernatural experiences. Wesley grew up in a haunted old rectory in Epworth, where a spirit referred to as Old Jeffrey by the Wesley family frequented the place between December of 1716 and January of 1717. Written accounts by most of the family reveal that they heard footsteps rattling, horns being blown, and knocking. Even his father, Reverend Samuel Wesley, had experiences with a pressing on his chest at night in bed. Yeah, remember episode 8? John Wesley wrote in his journal in 1768, quote, It is true likewise that the English in general, and indeed most of the men of learning in Europe, have given up all accounts of witches and apparitions as mere old wives' fables. I am sorry for it. And I willingly take this opportunity of entering my solemn protest against this violent compliment which so many that believe the Bible pay to those who do not believe it. I owe them no such service. I take knowledge that these are at the bottom of the outcry which has been raised and with such insolence spread throughout the land in direct opposition not only to the Bible 
but to the suffrage of the wisest and the best men in all ages and nations. They well know, whether Christians know it or not, that the giving up of witchcraft is, in effect, giving up the Bible. With my latest breath, I will bear testimony against giving up to infidels one great proof of this invisible world. I mean that of witchcraft and apparitions confirmed by the testimony of all ages. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that people began to stray from the acceptance of the supernatural. Because of the abuse of paying for indulgences, we threw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, and began refusing to acknowledge the connection with the spiritual world, with the rare exception of demons and angels. But all of this is only part of the conversation when it comes to analyzing La Llorona. Several years ago, my husband and I lived in a small border town in Texas. Not long after moving, I sought out to learn more about the culture and its beliefs. Being from the South, I wasn't aware of the Day of the Dead ceremonies, and as a Protestant, I wasn't aware of the deeply entrenched connection people of Latin America have with the dead. With painted skulls in every shop and our friends crossing themselves as we passed cemeteries, I found it all fascinating but foreign to me. Even though I had had my own supernatural experiences as a teen and also as an adult, I'd kept those things secret for fear that they conflicted with my faith. One thing that my experience with people of Mexican descent and strong Catholic roots taught me was that it's okay to speak about these things because, in fact, they are often great truths to be learned from. And for that, I'm grateful. Many people have claimed to have seen La Llorona near waterways, weeping for her lost children and utterly terrifying all those who see her. Though she's almost always crying, most people don't connect with her sadness. Instead, they feel fear, a deep, blood-curdling fear that stays with them long after she's gone. Many have said they feel her presence weeks later, years even, watching them. Even though we've established the possibility of ghosts, what if La Llorona is not a ghost, but something much, much worse? Many believe that La Llorona's true origin goes back to the beginning, the very beginning, of creation. In Jewish mythology, recorded by the Babylonian Talmud in the 3rd and 5th centuries AD, Lilith is a demoness who steals babies. In mythology, she was Adam's first wife, but when she refused to be submissive to him, she took flight, rejecting both Adam and God, and was cursed. Because she refused to return to the garden, one hundred of her children would be killed every day. Out of revenge to God, she vowed to kill children and would rob pregnant women of their babies, and is considered responsible for stillborns and crib deaths. The story gets even darker, but I'll stop here. The canonized text of the Bible only mentions her in Isaiah 34:14. The Hebrew term for her name is translated as a night creature, night hag, or screech owl. And the prophecy reads, Desert creatures will meet with hyenas, and wild goats will bleat to each other. There, the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young. 
under the shadows of her wings. There also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. I found it interesting that according to the book A Treasury of American Folklore, edited by Terry Hardin, in New Mexican tradition, the owl, or tegalate, is a feared creature often associated with witchcraft and a form witches often take. Hearing the hoot of an owl is said to be a bad omen, and the presence of an owl means that evil is about to visit the home. Where things start to get a little strange is the modern cultural references to this demoness. Her name is used in many feminist celebrated things, ranging from fairs to magazines. Even C.S. Lewis's Narnia character, the White Witch, has similarities to the demoness. According to an article by Megan Salter, quote, not only are both of them strong, terrifying women, but they also seem bent on destroying human life. Both will dark magic and are immortal beings. Given that women hold the incredible blessing of bearing life, I suppose it's not surprising that when twisted, some women have chosen to take life as well. After much research, I believe that the spirit of La Llorona is not a benign ghost, but a demonic entity that is out to steal, kill, and destroy. Whether you believe the mythology of the demoness or not, it remains evident that a dark spirit of evil possesses those who kill their own children. I realize that the mention of demons and dark spirits among us can be quite unsettling, but as believers, we are the salt of the earth. We're here to expose, restore, heal, and preserve. We are the antiseptic to evil. I believe it's essential as modern believers to research the foundations of our faith and pray about what resonates as truth within us. So many of us are afraid to speak about the supernatural, but by not doing so, we are leaving each other weak in understanding, and ignorance always leaves us vulnerable to spiritual attack. When I first set out on researching this topic, I thought I was simply going to take a peek into a story, just a piece of urban legend, but what I found was something much darker beneath, further proof in the power of folklore. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod. Many thanks to my friend Katie for recommending this topic. For a monthly contribution of only $1, you can access bonus episodes and other content. Though it's free to listen to podcasts, there are lots of costs involved in producing them. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash fablecollective. And please say hello on social media at Fable Collective. As always, thank you for listening.